But uh, right now, for this first uh, part of the uh, show, I'm going to talk a bit about Park Board. Vancouver's Park Board has provided endless topics for the news cycle over the last few years, so much so that many are calling for Canada's only independently elected Park Board to be dismantled. But let's leave that aside for now. Our next guest can fight that battle in election 2022. For today, I have some pointed questions to ask him on some stuff that went down the weekend, some other things. Uh, Park Board Commissioner John Cooper joins me now. Hi, hi John. How's it going? Uh, Good, George. Thanks for having me. Let's start uh, with uh, what happened over the weekend. And, uh, you know, right on the beach, five men overdosed uh, in English Bay, very close to a lifeguard station, people walking past, nobody noticed these guys, they thought they were sleeping. Can you tell me what's going on here? How could this possibly happen in our parks? Well, I think what we're seeing is across the city, you know, people are so used to the sort of the, you know, what's happening, and and they're walking by situations where in the past we would have been quite shocked and appalled. So I really think that uh, it's kind of a signal of the decline of the city uh, under this present administration that um, we're not looking after some of the basics. And obviously when it's hot like this, we need uh, coverage on our beaches with lifeguards. We need uh, park rangers to be around, and, and we need to be looking after people. And that's uh, that's really a key course service. But, John, you're, you're part of this administration. You're an elected commissioner. Uh, it's your job to, uh, you know, watch out for this, to to govern the park board. You're, you're one of several uh, commissioners. Uh, how, first of all, uh, could this... You know, this, uh, this challenge where you're describing that the fact that there are less lifeguards then, is that what we're, we're hearing? Well, yeah, and, and, you know, to put it in perspective, there are seven commissioners. Right now there is a uh, uh, majority of the Green Cope Alliance, and we know some of the things that they've done over the last few years that have been quite controversial, and uh, I've been opposed to most of them. So, you know, the Park Board isn't just one, uh, one unit that, that, that thinks the same way. We, it's a Democratic uh, elected board, and that's been its strength over many, many years. And... Uh, those people that are upset with the present direction that just need to straighten things out at the next uh, the next election. But the lifeguard situation is a real challenge because um, we had, uh, during the COVID period, uh, there's been some difficulty in certifying uh, lifeguards, and um, so this has been a real challenge. It's a, it's a what, shortage what, what, of lifeguards. What? No, hold on. Yeah. You can't, you can't get enough lifeguards? You can't qualify you can't them? Get, right now we can't get enough lifeguards. Often the, the problem is we have, we don't, they're not, we're not getting them on the shift. So what, what I'm suggesting, and I've asked our general manager, even though I'm you know, in the minority, I said, look, we've got to find a solution. Maybe what we could do is partner some more junior lifeguards with senior lifeguards to increase coverage. Like we have to find a solution. You know, we've been lifeguarding on the beaches since 1900. In September of 1900, Joe Fortes was our first mm-hmm. hired lifeguard. We've had coverage over the summers from May to June, basically, uh, you know, since the beginning of the park board. This is a real serious issue. Um, you know, I'm, I'm disappointed that the chair of the park board hasn't been out publicly and and encouraging lifeguards, anybody with lifeguard training, to to sign up. So I'd like well, to do that is, right Is it now. because the money's not good? Is that the challenge? You can't get... Le- no. These guys are first responders. They're like no, our ambulance not- guys. They're like our firefighters. Uh, if they're not appeal, if this, in, if this job is not appealing to enough young people, uh, then there's a problem with the job description, perhaps. No, it's always been appealing. The problem is right now is we just don't have enough of them. And um, so I'm, I'm suggesting anybody with lifeguard training, I'd like to put out an appeal right now on your station, if you'll let me, that anybody <laughs> with lifeguard training go onto the park board 
uh, website, go to the job section and apply immediately. Okay. We are in desperate but need of I'm it. seeing, John, I've seen some tweets out there recently of some, there seems to be an attitude right now with the lifeguards that are not, they're not happy. I've seen some signage, some things that people are tweeting that these, there's sort of a, almost what I'm hearing, a work to rule with these lifeguards. They're not happy with their current circumstances. They're being asked to move, from what I understand, from the beaches to the pools. Uh, they're not being uh, respected, from what I hear. Uh, it doesn't sound like the union supporting them anymore. I mean, they're, they're exempt, right? So they're not like full union people who work at the park board or city. Are these guys getting the respect, these, these people who save lives, hundreds of lives on our beach, are they getting the respect from the park board and the staff and the union that they should be getting? Well, I haven't heard that particular comment, George, and, uh, you know, this is an operational thing, but I would, I would say that uh, I certainly do. And going back to uh, 2012 when there was a plan to cut mm-hmm. lifeguards, I was very vocal about that at the time. You could recall it was yep. a vision-dominated board. And myself and Commissioner DiGenova at the time were able to kind of rally the lifeguard community. They came and spoke to the board, and those cuts, which I think were in the range of about $270,000, were not put forward. So it's not not a cut. It's a real uh, problem with resources. But I do feel like there needs to be more leadership by this Green Cope majority to really push our staff to say, let's get moving on this. I mean, this is the middle of summer. We're in the, the beaches are the busiest they've ever been. We're in a, basically, we've got a heat dome over the city, and we've got unguarded beaches, which is, well, to that's me, my next question. unacceptable. Uh, as a parent, uh, if I send my kid to the beach, which beaches should I tell him not to go to? Because he might die there because you don't have lifeguards there. Which, leech, which beaches have lifeguards being pulled off of? which is basically, you know, attrition of you're getting what you didn't want in 2012 just by the fact that you're saying that there's not enough, uh, st- you know, p- job, not enough people to fill these jobs. But if they're moving some of these guys around, some of these lifeguards that are uh, out there and they're leaving beaches empty and you're seeing people who are overdosing on the beaches, uh, you're, you know, are people drowning? Should I be worried? Where should I be worried? What beaches are, are, are of concern that if any, if any parent is out there or anybody who's out there swimming in the ocean needs to say, you know what, I shouldn't swim here because there's no nobody guarding me, even though I thought there was. Yeah, as disappointing as that is, I agree with you, George, and I would suggest that anybody uh, that has their kids on the beach has to make sure they're either there to supervise them, and if they're not, make sure they're not swimming at a beach where there is a lifeguards not present. They had, you know, it's, it's clear that it's clear it's signed when they're not there, and uh, if, you know, my, my kids are older now, but if they were younger, I would certainly not want them swimming in a beach that doesn't have a lifeguard, and that's uh, really important. Okay. I'm not going to dwell on this, but I would say that uh, as a parent uh, for administration of the park board, because it sounds like there's a lot of politics going on, get your act together, find some guards and keep people's safe, lives safe. So, I mean, I don't understand it. It's, it's crazy. Okay. I want to talk a bit about Oppenheimer Park. What is going on? Why is that park just starting to, it's starting to get opened? It's been closed for what, two years? It had the homeless camp on it. Uh, then you close it, you got, the, you got the, home, the camp out of there, you put a fence around it, you took care you, put the grass back in, you fixed all the facilities, but it's still fenced off, or was at least until the weekend. What's going on there? Uh, the park, the west end of the park is opening uh, today, George. Uh, to be completely clear, uh, that part of the park is being rehabilitated. The, uh, the field house and the washrooms were destroyed during the encampment, absolutely mm-hmm. trashed. They have not been repaired, even though the park has been vacant for a year. That, again, I think is a, a lack of leadership by this Green Cope Alliance. They basically facilitated uh, camping in that park. 
Um, as you know, both myself and PA Commissioner Tricia Barker and I were against the encampment and called for an injunction. So this is the in, this is the unintended consequence, really not so unintended actually, that uh, this park is in in um, doesn't have operating washrooms. We're having to bring in portable washrooms used to, to, to service that it, park. It did have oper- It did have. Oh washrooms. yes, absolutely. It had uh, a lot of facilities in that field house. A lot of community uh, outreach was going on there. But during the time of the uh, encampment, it was absolutely uh, virtually destroyed and needs to be rebuilt from the inside out. And obviously and, uh, right now, during this heat wave, this would be a very important facility for the downtown east side, for people who live and, and work down there, uh, no matter what their circumstances. That's the biggest park in the neighbourhood, correct? Absolutely, and it's, a park, it's an area of the city that's quite deficient in parks. So now we've got two parks in the, on the east side, in the downtown east side, close by there, including uh, Strathcona, which remain closed. Um, Oppenheimer, I'm happy to see a portion of the park opening today, but in my opinion, it should never be allowed to degrade to that point. Uh, we had a situation where you would only have four, four police officers would only go in there as four. They wouldn't, they wouldn't even mm-hmm. go in with two police officers. We had homicides. We had all kinds of things yeah, going on it was, there. It was bad. We, we remember, John, and that's probably why there's yeah. so much uh, anger about the park. Hey, John, can you stay with me? And we're going to take some calls after the break. Are you willing to stick around for a few minutes? Sure can. Thanks, George. All right, George Affleck here in for Jill Bennett this week, who is filling in for Simi in the mornings. And uh, we're going to be taking your calls now, 604-280-9898, 604-280-9898. Joining me uh, is my guest is John Cooper, Park Board Commissioner. And before the break, we were talking about the lifeguards, the fact that they have a real need for more lifeguards, and the fact that there are some beaches that are going unguarded, which as a parent, that really worries me, and I would like to know that if I'm sending my kid to the beach. We heard a bit about Oppenheimer Park. We're taking your calls now, 604-280-9898. If you have questions for John or you want to just uh, rant about the park board, which these days it's happening a lot. we got Steve from Delta. Steve, go ahead. Hi there. I know I'm not in Vancouver, but I visit Vancouver all the time. Sure. I visit Burnaby. I live in Delta. You know, Burnaby and Delta got fantastic parks. They got no parks board. Uh, they got lots of parks. Vancouver is the only one with a independent parks board, and they seem to just mess up everything. In the last, I don't know, five, ten years, they've just turned terrible uh, you know, all the money, they don't have lifeguards because they're too busy putting pylons in and out of Stanley Park. And uh, why, are they, why do we even need them? Can, I would ask Mr. Cooper if he could ask, tell me, why do we need an independent parks board in Vancouver? <laughs> I mean, I think they just get lots of money and they waste it. And, and they're power trippers <laughs> that, you know, uh, six or seven parks board people could determine what uh, three quarters of a million people have to put up with. They're, they're not a mayor. They're not on the council. I mean, shit. They, All right, to get Steve. one of them elected, it only, you only got to get 10,000 people to vote for them. All right, Steve, you know, John, they're deciding everybody's right, stuff. It's let's, ridiculous. Let's hear from John. John, defend the park board. You've got 10 seconds. No, go ahead. What yeah, are your thoughts? Th- well, thanks for your call. And, and I understand your frustration. You know, I've been on the park board for 10 years, and uh, it's actually a great organization. The difficulty is that we have a left-leaning uh, board that is very much uh, has an agenda, and the, re- the way to change that is in an election. Uh, the, the city uh, can't really handle what they have with permits and everything else. As you can see, they're behind for housing and everything else. So the park board is, is, has done a lot of great work. You just look at the, the beaches and the parks that we have. I agree with you. We need a change of administration. There's no question about that. But uh, I don't think you throw the baby out with the bathwater if you go back to... Uh, 
the history of Vancouver. You yeah, but how many more great terms, John, do we have to take this kind of torture? I mean, it's become so politicized, as you know, uh, that it becomes almost why bother? You know, just send over the administration to, to staff and uh, skip all this politics where they have agenda-driven politics and you end up getting nothing done. Why not just get rid of it? It just seems to make sense. Well, if you look at the history of the park board and you really, if you get behind, away from the rhetoric that you're talking about, George, you know very well, for instance, the, the waterways we have around the continuous seawall would have never happened without a park board. Uh, we would have seen development right to the water's edge. Yeah. Uh, there's long history of that. So but 10 I, years I think of that, bad history, uh, though, John. 10 years we've of had 10 bad years of bad history, history but so we've had a lot 100 of history. Bad. We've had 140 years of great history, and I think right. we're ready to we're ready to turn that around in 2022. <laughs> and I think we have a good team going forward, the NPA, right, and we will right, turn it around. Right. I got Ethel from West Van. Uh, Ethel, go ahead. I'd like to see the parks board disbanded. Okay. I have phoned in about the bicycles, and it's only a few cope members who can actually get up certain areas of the park. It's incompetent what you guys have yeah. done. I'm sorry. You need to go. We need to have a government from our province who will develop a department to look after the park. It's incompetent. Ten years of bad management in any business should be gone. All right, Ethel. Thank you very much for your call. John, same sort of sentiment there. But you, of course, I know have been fighting against many of the issues that have been uh, dominating the park board's agenda the last few years. Yeah, and and we we need to bring common sense back to the park board. I I believe that's possible. I mean, the thing is that uh, that's why we have elections. And, you know, the the fellow earlier said, you know, you only need 10,000 votes. You need as many votes to be on park board as you do on council. So, uh, gen- generally, that's the way it goes. So people are pretty engaged across Vancouver with the Park Board, and, and we've had some great commissioners over the years and uh, have done some great things. So right. uh, we need to calm down and, and just get a good administration in there. <laughs> and let's you know that people rolling. are frustrated. You can feel it. Oh, here. You of can course. Sense I'm here. frustrated. Yeah, yeah. I'm frustrated. I've been there for 10 years. I'm very frustrated. And, you know, for the couple of years that I was uh, in charge, we were able to do some great things and move forward some really positive agendas. So right. there's lots of opportunity to move forward in a positive way. All right. We got Kevin from Vancouver. Go ahead, Kevin. You got uh, 30 seconds. Go ahead. Oh, okay. Well, uh, you know, I'll probably keep it quick. Then I was just going to say it's kind of funny how you've, uh, you you're the face of this. You're you're taking all the punishment here, and you're actually on on the side that I'm on. Um, <laughs> what's the goal with uh, what's the goal with uh, with all the homeless and all the the people that need help ending up in parks? It, is this? It, it feels like it's just become a place to house everybody. And uh, I thought we were working on actually having housing for everybody. Why is everyone ending up in the parks? Uh, that's basically the question. Thanks, Kevin. You know, real quick, John, you know, how do we stop? Should we stop this park board slash housing initiative? Or, I mean, you've got, you know, 15 seconds. What are you going to do? Well, I, th- I think the park board needs to stay out of the housing business, look to be the park business. I'd like to put the park back in park board, and that's the key thing for me. So All right. it's not we're not a social uh, service. We are supposed to look after parks, and that's our core goal, and that's what I try and do every day that I'm elected. Thanks, John. Thanks for joining me today. Thank you. George Affleck in here for Jill Bennett today on All This Week. Um, looking forward to being here with you for the next several days. Uh, I just want to remind everybody to feel free to call our buzz line today, 604-331-2899, 604-331-2899. If you don't get a chance to get through when we have questions like we did before the break, we were talking about the park board and whether or not there's enough lifeguards and whether you feel the park board's doing its job, 604-331-2899. Leave your uh, messages on there. At the end of the show, we'll be playing some of the 
some of the clips from those messages. Uh, you can also email me, george at cknw.com, uh, or you can tweet at me at uh, george underscore Affleck uh, on Twitter. So uh, that's if you want to get in touch with us. If anything during the show, feel free to call us or email me or tweet at me, and I will happily connect with you. So we've all been wearing masks to prevent the spread of COVID-19 for more than a year now. BC is set to remove its mask mandate later this week, we think. Uh, But some people, many people, are calling uh, for the permanent wearing of masks to prevent the spread of illness, be it COVID, uh, the flu, a bad cold. Some governments seem interested in this idea for various reasons, like healthcare savings, for example, say, you know, safety, spreading uh, any future pandemics, and so on. Suzanne Anton is firm, former attorney general in BC, and she's worried that decisions impinging on our liberties are, are made for, are, these kinds of decisions are made for genuine health reasons and not by kind of a public demand, public pressure. Ms. Anton joins me now. Hello. Hey, George. Thanks for joining me. So liberties versus health, how, how do we choose? I mean, I want to stay safe. I want to be healthy. I don't want my, my, my parents, to die, grandparents, I don't want, you know, how do we balance this as a government? Well, all of these public health decisions made over the last nearly 18 months now, they are, most of them are, in fact, a breach of our charter rights or a breach of our civil liberties. That is okay. It's, it's fine. You can breach our rights, our liberties, mm-hmm. as long as there's a good reason to do it. There has to be a justifiable reason. When decisions are made as a result of public demand rather than genuine health reasons, in my view, that is not a good reason to breach a person's charter rights. And the masking rules in British Columbia often have been made by public demand. And, and I can give you a couple of examples if you like. The, sure. um, yeah, so <laughs> the, I'll, give you, I'll give you a few examples. Um, I don't know if you remember, if some people will remember, um, last November, I don't have the dates exactly right, but, but Dr. Bonnie Henry wrote an article in the Vancouver Sun saying that mandatory masking was not required. Mm-hmm. Two or three days later there, she was at a news conference with Health Minister Dick saying, oh, yes, we do need masking. We do need mandatory masking in indoor public spaces. Now, was that for a health reason or was that because there was overwhelming public demand? Well, I would argue that it was because of overwhelming public demand. There there certainly wasn't any change in the health reason from the time of her editorial to the time the government made the political decision that all indoor public spaces should have masking. But sometimes government has to move fast. I mean, they, you would argue now that wearing masks seems to have been a good idea. No. Well, I, I don't know, because they, we've actually never been by the provincial government been presented with with actual evidence showing, you know, why don't they show us a study or two saying that it's a good idea? Now, people seem to accept that it is, but I think over the, that, that will have to stand the test of time as people study these um, effects of masking in some jurisdictions, and some jurisdictions haven't had masking, and you'll be able to look at the two of them and decide whether or not it um, made things better in one place or another. Let me give you a second example, though, George. Sure. The, the city of Vancouver, do you remember the city has required masking even before the province got into the, mm-hmm. into the mandatory game? They said we needed to have it in all our public facilities, all our libraries, all our community centers, and so on. That was not a health decision because the public health officials actually stood up in front of council and said, no, you don't need to do it. 
and council went ahead and did but it you, anyway. You're, so, you're a former, a uh, yeah, but you're a former, you're a former politician in a democracy, and you want to win the next election. Uh, public sentiment is something that uh, inspires you to to do things. It makes you say, you know what? Oh, okay, yeah, sure, that's what people want. I'm going to do that. What's wrong with that? That seems, I mean, because you're going to get all this heat and hate for saying, oh, you're an anti-masker. But this is more than that. But it, really, if if a job of a politician is to be a conduit for the feelings of the people and then implement policies that meet those needs, no? And, and the job of those looking after our liberties and our rights is to maintain them. And that includes, that includes politicians, by the way. They, they should have an eye at all times. It's, it's not tyranny of the majority, George. It's not, it's not public demand that says we should breach people's rights. If you want to look at public demand, you just have to go backwards in time and think of dreadful things that we have in our past. I'll give you mm-hmm. an example of the, the head tax for people who wanted to come here from China. There was a head tax. That was a public demand. And now, we didn't have a Charter of Rights at that time, of course, or, or, um, or various human rights acts. But when we look back at those decisions with embarrassment, they were dreadful decisions. Some would argue that the empty homes tax is a similar, that's the argument they're using as well, that this is a kind of, uh, you know, more of a public relations exercise than an actual good policy. Is that when this comes down to? Well, that may be, but don't forget, some of these things are in our law, in our our constitution. I I don't know that the public, that the... (laughs) <laughs> Empty homes tax is a constitutional right. But some of the things that are, you know, that for example, people not being able to have their church services, in-person church mm-hmm. services, that was that was genuinely a breach of the constitution, and it went to court. And unfortunately, I'm sorry to say, the courts did not back the churches. But that was definitely a breach of a constitutional right, something laid down in our Charter of Rights. So, so, but but if people become, you know, obviously we don't, we nobody, we were panicking and we were in a in a crisis and a, and a, it's a pandemic, something that we hadn't experienced like anything like this, and so decisions had to be made without the kind of intelligence, and that by that I mean information collected to prove your decision so that you had to make impulsive decisions, everything from masks to how you pay for staff or whatever it might be. Uh, these decisions were made in the, in the heat of the moment. Are you worried, though, that this kind of decisions be created a slippery slope for all policies moving forward, that it, uh, it provides... I, I am indeed. And, and, and I think all of us can be very patient with what happened last March, April, May. We really didn't know what we had, mm-hmm. even whether you disagreed with this decision or that, or agreed with that decision. And, you know, the, the authorities really were struggling to find the right answers. But don't forget the mask mandate came in November. And then the, the third example I was going to give you about public demand and masking was children in schools. Mm-hmm. And I don't believe that Dr. Bonnie Henry, she's, she's always been adamant that children must be in school. Mm-hmm. I think she's been right on in her decisions on that. And it was not Dr. Henry that required masking for young children. It was the education minister. Mm-hmm. And again, there's not a shred of evidence that young children in particular should be wearing masks. So into the long term, which I think is what mm-hmm. you're asking about yeah. now, I think we There's all need push. to remember There's that... definitely a push. There, there seems to be this, you know, oh, let's wear masks all the time. It seems to, yeah. you know, let's great. So, so that's the WHO saying that mm-hmm. and Health Canada saying that. Fortunately, neither of those organizations drive our health policy in British Columbia. Health policies, provincial decisions, and it's made properly made, uh, provincial decisions properly made here in the province by people accountable to you, me, all your listeners, all the people of British Columbia. We have control through the voting booth about who is there to to make these decisions. So 
it is right that those decisions should be made in British Columbia, not externally. But again, we have, so there. Few, we have so few cases now, George. Thank goodness. We, mm-hmm. we have very few cases in British Columbia. I don't really see any argument for having much in the way of rules at all. Most of the rules are coming off uh, on the first, fortunately, Mm -hmm. and including apparently the mandatory masking rule. And that is as it should be. And I, I hope and I, I don't think that the government will be pressed into changing that and they should not be. All right, Ms. Anton, thanks for joining me today. I appreciate that. We're going to take calls, and you'll probably get a lot of people saying what they really think of you. So. <laughs> well, don't forget that anyone is free to wear their mask as much <laughs> as they like, but they should not require others to do so once the requirement is gone. Okay. As, Th- it, as it should be soon. Thanks for joining me. I know you're on the road, but I appreciate you taking the time. Okay, George. Thank you. George Affleck in for Jill Bennett this week, and uh, we have a full show here today in our second hour here. We'll be talking a bit about travel with your kids now that they're not at school. <laughs> you got to make plans because they canceled school today. I know my kid is sitting at home, and I think it's hotter at home than at school. But anyways, he's at home, and uh, I'll be making plans for a summer vacation now, I suppose. In our last hour, we'll be talking about staying safe. If you want to work out, people actually are working out. So in this weather, I you know, outside. And, and so we need to talk to uh, – we'll be finding – talking to an expert about how to stay safe and cool uh, in the heat, especially if you want to work out. And we'll also be talking about uh, the Olympics are coming, sports, you know, community events with groups of people. So John Jang will be in here to talk a bit about that. But first, I want to talk a bit about a poll that came out. Trouble in paradise for our premier and the NDP. The BC Liberals might hope so. A new poll says the NDP's popularity is slipping a little bit. To talk about this, I'm joined by Steve Mossop, president of Insights West, who did the poll. Hi, Steve. Hi, George. Thanks for having me on the show. Pleasure. Now, tell me, let's run through the numbers. I mean, I think the BC Liberals are probably rubbing their hands a little bit, but maybe not too much. Give me the rundown. Maybe not too much. Maybe not too much. We have seen some pretty amazing numbers for uh, a government in power Mm -hmm. in British Columbia. And the pandemic has really made those numbers uh, spike through the roof. And approval ratings have been super high. Dr. Bonnie is Mm well-loved. They're handling the pandemic at top-rated scores. And uh, we're just starting now to see as the pandemic is beginning to wane that uh, the numbers are slipping somewhat. So, for example, we had approval ratings for Premier Horgan that were up around 70% just a a couple of short months ago. And now they've returned to a more manageable 50% number. 50%? That's that's a big drop, 20% drop. I mean, that's something to, you know, go, ooh. It is, but you know, even prior to the seventy percent, it's rare to get a sitting premier that has a fifty percent approval rating. That's a rare number. In <laughs> so we got used to seventy percent, and we're like, yeah, oh, fifty. I'm happy with that. We we had to do a double take of the numbers uh, when that came out, but uh, it has come down. And we've seen a number of other things come down. So we COVID obviously has dominated the public mm-hmm. agenda for the last uh, year and a half by yep. far. This is the first time that we polled where it's been bumped from the number one spot. When we asked British Columbians what's the number one issue facing the province of B.C., it is reverted back to the housing crisis, and that's number one. And then COVID's uh, been relegated to number two spot. So it's like 2019 all over again now with housing being number one. It is. We've seen probably eight years of rising numbers for Mm -hmm. housing, and and so we're back in in that spot. And then things like the opioid crisis has Mm -hmm. also uh, come up pretty high. It's number four on the list. And crime and public safety with the Mm gang-related shootings in the past few months has also gone up to to 7%. So we have seen some changes unlike uh, the the past 15 months. It's kind of related to the news cycle a little bit. I mean, the, you know, opioid crisis, crime, and housing. Okay, those are, besides COVID, those are the top sort of news stories that we're hearing. Uh, So as a result, as COVID sort of, 
goes away, as we hope it does, uh, those then become the dominant issues that they have to deal with, I would think, right? Exactly. And we scored uh, the provincial government about every six months on a number of different files, if you will. And if you look at some of them, uh, such as the opioid crisis and uh, housing prices and crime and public safety, those ratings are quite bad, and we're, you know they're mm-hmm. they're being criticized for for those particular agenda items. They're tough ones to solve too. I would say if the province is going well, you know, policing that's a city issue. Uh, opioid is kind of a national issue that we have to deal with as far as drug distribution, uh, but housing that's really mostly the province's baby. I mean, you can talk about regional stuff, but generally the housing file is something that people look to the province for the most part as to lead on that. They have, and they've been looking for quite a few years, and, and they're just not seeing it. I mean, there's not much the province can do to combat low interest rates, which is driving demand for mm-hmm. housing. But they are, you know, on the public housing front and, and uh, the tax rates and the uh, out-of-province uh, taxes, that those are issues that we can control. Politicians quite often use polling as uh, sometimes a crutch when they uh, when they need them. They need want to figure out what decisions they need to make about you know their policies, but they can also hate them and then sometimes they love them depending on how they how they <laughs> land. But so you've got two things I thought were interesting. You know, the polling for Horgan's still pretty strong, you know, seventy to fifty, but fifty strong. But what was surprising is uh, you know BC Liberal leader uh, interim leader Shirley Bond didn't do very well. Surprisingly. A bit of a surprise, you know, her predecessor got such terrible ratings that mm-hmm. we thought it would go up. And in fact, she's starting from a lower point than where he left off. So where did she go? So she's less than, than Wilkinson was. She is less, yes. What, what we have here, we have uh, uh, Horgan's approval rating has, has obviously dropped from uh, the 65 to 66%. Mm-hmm. And uh, then Shirley Bond has gone to uh, is starting out at only thirty four percent. So where does that where does that energy go then? If it doesn't, it's just over at Horgan, or or it goes to the Green Party, or it goes to because even the Conservatives are down. It seems like center right of center parties are not doing very well. Green Party and NDP continue to consistently be pretty strong. Uh, we are a bit surprised with the Green Party ratings because not a whole lot has happened on the political scene to see the numbers go up, and we had to do an, again a triple take of where things have gone. So we have uh, 19% of existing voters who say that they would vote for the Green Party, which is up uh, quite substantially from where they they finished the election result at about 12%. Mm-hmm. And that's first to know, you think, the leadership of, of her style of, of being quite aggressive out there? I think it's that, and it's also the issues of the day. So if you look at what's uh, dominating the public agenda besides COVID right. and housing, we've seen all of a sudden forestry coming out of nowhere. You know, it hasn't been high on the list since the early 90s. We also have uh, the state of our oceans mm-hmm. and climate change uh, starting to resurface as COVID dissipates, that these environmental issues are there. And, and traditionally across the country, as well as in BC, the Greens are seen to lead in those areas. They just can't seem to break through in other things like jobs and the economy. It would seem that this heat wave that we're having would be a great opportunity for the Green Party to really jump on uh, the global climate change situa- you know, problem that we have and how they can use that. And hey, here's an ex- literally example we're living through right now. Exactly, and and she hasn't been as visible as maybe what these numbers would have suggested. You know, to see that kind of a increase in the voter intentions was a bit surprising for us. Do you think the for the BC Liberals, it's just because they're kind of in a flux? They're, they're you know, she Shirley Bond doesn't have the ability to lead because she's not really the leader. She's filling in until they find a leader. That until you have a leader in place, it's really hard to resonate in in any kind of polling. Because who are you? What do you stand for? Leadership matters, right? I think so. And with the dominance of COVID and the headlines and the, 
it's really a unified approach the public's yeah. taken towards those policy issues. It's hard for Shirley to stand up and differentiate herself on, on COVID. But as, as these other issues surface, there's definitely an opportunity for her to step up and say, hey, we have a differing point of view than the status quo that's being offered up by the NDP. The, the love for Dr. Bonnie continues, though. That is insanely. She's doing like nobody else in this country, I would say. It's really unlike anything I've ever seen in public wow. polling, let really? alone the country. Yeah, we've never seen, you know, when, when we saw John Horgan's rate go up to 70% uh, just six short months ago, that was a first. And then to see her stay at the top of the list um, in the numbers that we're seeing here is really quite something as well. We just don't see those numbers. And there's been, you know, there hasn't been a shortage of public criticism. You know, when we reopen mm-hmm. the economy and the consistency of the rules, there's been lots of opportunities for the public to be maybe less happy, but the, mm-hmm. the numbers are super solid. When you're, I don't know how, you know, the polling questions that you ask, but when you're talking to your team who's doing, if it's email or talking or how they do all their polling, but it, you know, when you're getting that kind of positive rating that she's getting, do you get it from your team saying, oh man, like this, people just love her. Well, you do, and you also get sort of a disbelieving, okay, let's double-check the numbers <laughs> here, folks. Let's, let's really look at it. Right. And then also look at the reasons why. You know, we sort of dig behind it and say what segments are in favor or opposed to certain things, and you get some insights there. But in a case like her, so Dr. Bonnie's ratings, uh, 73% approval of saying doing a good mm-hmm. job or a very good job. At the earlier stage of the pandemic, around May of last year, it was 79%. So mm-hmm. just a slight, slight bit down. But you look at uh, Horgan's numbers have dropped uh, 12 points. Uh, mm-hmm. Adrian Dix's numbers have dropped, but Bonnie's staying uh, solidly at the top. One of the decisions that, that they made early on in this province was not to politicize it, they, that they put her out front uh, and put her in that in a heated moment. But she's not a politician. So do you think it's because she didn't care about, she just stuck to her science and stuck to her guns, as it were, like, I'm just focused on what I need to achieve here. And so she didn't have the noise that politicians might get, and so therefore that's why she's been able to be consistent like that? I, I believe it was a calculated strategic move on Horgan's part. He really stepped out of the limelight, let her take the front and center stage, and that hasn't really happened in any, mm. any of the other provinces. The premiers have really taken the heat, rightly or wrongly, for the public policy decisions made on COVID. And you look at Klein in Alberta, mm-hmm. you look at Ford in Ontario, Detroit, and you look at the degree, public yeah. criticism mm-hmm. that they've been facing and the mm-hmm. ratings that they have, it's really turned out in uh, the D.C. NDP's favour to see the numbers that they see. How do they know? How do they know to do that? Was that just instinct on the Premier's part? You know, where was there an example of that? I'm trying to think where that came from and why nobody I, else I, they did They were it. really leading the charge because they were really yeah. first to give her that centre stage. And then you have to look at the results. We've seen, you know, the last couple of press conferences, especially one that was focused on the reopening, it was mm-hmm. almost a bit like a post-election victory parade. <laughs> <laughs> there was a lot mm-hmm. of uh, back slapping and congratulations over the numbers. And when you look at British Columbia, if we were an independent country, we would be number one around the world mm-hmm. as far as the dosages received and first doses anyway, and probably very close these days on the second dose. It's our West Coast attitude, maybe, too. You know, we're sort of like, okay, let's just get this done, you know, and staying outside, all right, we'll just, you know, <laughs> we'll kind of chill about these things. They're less political sometimes, maybe. I don't know. It seems interesting. I think so. Maybe a bit of Canadian politeness, you know, <laughs> and so on. That's really a mantra that uh, you don't see elsewhere in other jurisdictions. <laughs> True. All right, Steve, thanks for joining me today. I appreciate that. George Affleck in for Jill Bennett this week. Uh, she's filling in while she fills in for Simi in the morning. She gets up early 
and uh, I get to do her show, which is uh, an honor. Uh, if you want to reach me, you can email me, george at cknw.com, or if you want to follow me on Twitter, at uh, george underscore Affleck. Um, and if you want to call us uh, on our buzz line to talk about any of the issues, we'll be playing some of the uh, buzz line at the end of the show. Let's call our buzz line at 604-331-2899, 604-331-2899. In this hour, we'll be talking a bit about, so we'll be hearing some of those buzz line calls. We'll also be talking to John Jang about sports, the Olympics are coming, uh, entertainment inside, all that kind of stuff. What's coming up? Uh, what can we expect over the next couple of months of summer? So that'll be interesting to hear. Now, this may be hard to believe, but some people still like, they, they need they need to exercise. They need the heat, even in this heat. This is crazy. It's, it seems perhaps it's, maybe it's a West Coast thing. I don't know. My get, next guest has some tips on how to exercise and stay cool in the summer without getting heat exhaustion and how to beat the heat in general. Scott Lear is SFU professor of, in the Faculty of Health Sciences. Hi, Scott. How are you doing? Great. Hi, George. So let's start with this, uh, this uh, idea of exercising when it's this hot. Uh, you know, can I just shed pounds by just walking across the street right now? It's like, do I need to exercise? <laughs> Yeah, I'm sure with uh, the amount of sweat that we're putting out, uh, we're, we're, li- we're losing weight, but it's, it's not necessarily going to uh, stay off, um, and, we, and we need to keep hydrated. Yeah, you're, you're, you're totally right. Like, this is hopefully a, a short-lived heat, heat wave. Mm-hmm. Um, in a couple days, we'll, we'll start to cool down. And so, you know, it's not a, it's not a big deal if people take a day or two off. You're certainly, if you are going to exercise, you're certainly not going to break any personal bests in, in <laughs> but there are ways. Uh, there are ways around it. I, I went this morning, like staying out of peak hours. Right. I went to uh, Kitsilano Pool to swim outside, which was more more refreshing, and uh, so, but made sure that I'm staying indoors during the the peak uh, sun hours. So stay like so. Pools, great idea. Maybe not running outside, bad idea. Although I saw a guy running uh, like at noon uh, the other day. I'm thinking, why would you do that? Yeah, yeah. Noon's getting pretty much right at the the peak time, and and who knows? Maybe that that was if it wasn't the weekend, maybe the the lunch break. But yeah, I, I, it definitely has been quieter though. I, I noticed people are probably staying indoors, ex- mm-hmm. exercising less. But if you are going to, you got to make sure that you're you've got plenty of fluids before and after. As I said, stay out of the sun as much as possible in the shade. Wear a hat. Uh, some things that you could do that I've I've done on occasion mm-hmm. is uh, dip your shirt in water, put it on, and then go out because that way you get the cooling effects of uh, the evaporation without having okay. to, to sweat. Because when you're sweating, when it's hot like this, your body's working hard enough, and then when you exercise, that adds more to it. That's right. You know, I, I admit that this morning I went early to the gym. It was air conditioned gym, but when I left. Uh, of course, I'd been exercising, and my body temperature was up, uh, and I had, I had a real challenge cooling down. And of course, I had to come here to work, um, and didn't have time to put on a wet shirt. <laughs> what, what other <laughs> techniques could I use to to cool out, to cool down, to chill out? Well, exercising in an air conditioned room is is great. Mm-hmm. Other things, like for example, most of us don't have air conditioning at home in, mm-hmm. in this part of the world, and so you know, after around seven o'clock this morning at home, we had we closed all our windows. The blinds are pretty much down to try to maintain whatever coolness. But the, but the challenge, too, isn't just the heat in the day. It's the heat at night. And mm-hmm. if you don't have air conditioning, it can be 
a challenge to get a good night's sleep. So that's further tiring you out for, for the next day. Yeah. And again, exercise on top of that, while fantastic, you know, if people are going to do it, just expect, you know, to dial it back a bit. I heard, you know, Jill Bennett was filling in this morning on the host of this show, but she was filling in this morning and she talked about uh, something that I would have totally thought was an urban legend. And she uh, put her washer sheet, somebody told her to wash her sheet, put it in the freezer and then, so have it wet, put it in the freezer, freeze it, then put it on the bed and then sleep on it. And she said it worked. And I thought this seems ridiculous. I mean, but she said it worked like this kind of urban, I would have thought an urban myth actually works. Is that? Yeah. Well, when, when we're sleeping, we sleep best when it's a bit cooler. And so it's better to sleep in a, in a cooler room right. than we're used to dur- during the day. Like, if you are cold, you can always put more sheets on. But the last couple of nights, I've been having a cold shower just before right I get before. into bed, just to wind my body temperature down a tiny bit before I get go to sleep. Are there any ideas that you've heard that you go, no, that's, that, that's not a thing? You know, that is ridiculous. <laughs> um <laughs> Yeah, she's just trying to to think. I've I've heard some. You know, I know people are going for car rides just so they can sit in their <laughs> air conditioning. Uh, going to shopping malls. These things will keep us cool. Yeah. My my daughter, she'll sit with a cold, ice cold foot bath uh, while she's watching TV or, or things. I haven't heard. Uh, you know, I've heard some different things, but nothing really wacky. That I'm like, oh, okay, you probably shouldn't be doing that. You know, anything. Pretty much what you can do to cool yourself down will be helpful. Okay. So when the, right, we have uh, later in the show, we're going to be talking about the Olympics. I know there are professional athletes right now who are uh, having to exercise, and so they have to follow the same criteria, but they're forced into the situation. And I imagine when they go to some of these countries to perform, uh, the heat differences are huge. How do you even prepare for that if you're an athlete and you're required to actually perform? Yeah. And... The, the, one of the things, the concern with what's happened here on the West Coast and Western Canada is it's happened so suddenly. Like just last week or 10 days ago, we were all making jokes about January. You know, it was mm-hmm. cold and, yeah. and, and rainy. So mm-hmm. all of a sudden. And so that's kind of the same thing. We weren't acclimatized to it. So a lot of athletes, so the idea is the athletes would go to that location for the race at least two weeks beforehand, you know, just to make sure that they're acclimatized to, to do some workouts in that environment, in that weather, so their body gets used to it. You know, obviously, like, 40-degree weather is not no. common here. Right. But there are parts of the world whereby um, it's, like, 30 to 35 during during the summer, and people are still active. So the body does have some uh, adaptation to mm-hmm. it. But you're right. If if you're having to run the marathon, uh, like, at 11 o'clock, usually they'll start it much earlier. There was uh, an Ironman just uh, over the weekend in Coeur d'Alene, and they started mm-hmm. that at, I think, 4.30 in the oh, morning instead of uh, to, to try and beat the heat. That climatization, I, I always think that that's a, that's a scam, that that's not real. You can actually, like, some people would say, oh, I was living in this country and it was really hot for a long time, and I came back here and it's so cold now, I'm so cold all the time. I always think that that's just, you know, no, that's bullshit. Come it, on, you know, that's not real. It, it lasts for a very short time. So, so your body actually, your mind is telling you that the temperature is too cold. Like it's your mind. It's not your body or is it your body? Well, what, what, what happens is, um, like, for example, in terms of the heat, mm-hmm. your body gets more efficient at cooling itself. 
but then when you go back into a cooler temperature, you, you lose that after a few days. It's not like years, like, you know, you grow mm-hmm. up living in uh, Las Vegas and, and, and then you're in Vancouver 30 years later, you still find it cold. No, that's, you're, you're, you're true. You're right. It's, it's mm-hmm. just a few, it's a few days or a week. So your, your body, even like our sweat is different in the wintertime than, than the summer. So the body does change. What do you mean? Uh, like, how is it different? Well, it's in the wintertime, it's saltier. Oh, really? Yeah. And so we're, we're pre- in the summertime, it's, it's not as salty, and we're, we're preserving our... Why? Our why, why is it... What is that body doing? Is the saltiness protection? For What is going on there? So what's, what we need uh, salt for, it keeps, um, like, our concentration of our, of our fluids in our body. If, if we start... We're not going to be sweating too much in, in the wintertime. And if we start losing salt as well as sweat, mm-hmm. then that, is, that becomes um, more problematic than if we're just losing pure water. So, our, so we, people can, can run a marathon and they'll lose uh, maybe two, three, four pounds of fluid. Mm-hmm. And most of that is just going to be water. And that's okay because like the bodies preserve the, the concentration of the blood of the cell fluids and things like that. But when, if we start losing salt as well, then that can become problematic um, and become more, um, have an adverse effect. Okay. And just like also when we get older, our sweating mechanism isn't as efficient as when we're younger. So this mm-hmm. is one of the reasons why for, for elderly, older people, like in their 60s, 70s and above, that have to be even more cautious about exposure to heat. Because they don't sweat or they do sweat or is it a different kind of sweat? What? They, they sweat less. They sweat less. Yeah. Funny, because I feel like as I get older, I sweat more. <laughs> Yeah, I, 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 you <laughs> know, I, I think the same thing too. But that our, our sweat glands tend to tend to be less uh, efficient. Maybe we're sweating about different things. One of those warning signs. I mean, I one time when I was way back when I was nineteen or twenty, I was working at a, a, a Mr. Mike's Flippin' Burgers, and I you know I hadn't drunk enough water. All it was a hot day. I was working in front of a grill, and I didn't think much about it because I was nineteen. And then later that day, I started really getting these pains in my stomach, and I didn't know what it was. And it turns out it was, I was completely dehydrated, apparently. And it was just like it was. I was doubled over, and I thought I was. I thought I was dying. I didn't know what was wrong with me. Are those the kind of warning signs like that? Is one. What other warning signs? If you know you're too hot or you're dehydrated, that you should think you know consider those things before you go too far. Yeah, definitely something like that. Probably some of the earliest signs would be like a headache, mm-hmm. um, f- fatigue. But that's kind of hard to distinguish from any mm-hmm. other type of irritability. Um, and then starting to get into things like feeling nausea, uh, vomiting, that's when it starts, you're getting heat exhaustion if it continues. So what, what's happening at that point is it's the case where your body temperature is rising. So how it's linked with the dehydration is that we sweat uh, to cool our bodies down. Now, the sweat only works if it dries. If, if, we're, if our sweat, and this is probably what's happening, you know, because I worked in a kitchen too when I was younger. If the sweat's just dripping off you, it's not doing anything to cool you. You're just losing, losing water. And so um, what, if your body temperature starts to go up, that's when the body systems start to fail. And that's when you start to feel these things. And if, it's, if it continues, 
then it can be problematic, lead to okay. hospitalization, and it can be yeah. fatal as well. Do you think sometimes it's just arrogance that you think, oh, I'm not, I'm not, I'm fine, I'm fine. I'm, you know, I'm young, I don't get dehydrated. I, this is not, you know, and people just deny it, and then they fall over, they pass out. Oh, yeah, yes. Uh, we, we, we all like to think we're in, invincible, yeah. uh, especially, especially when, when we're younger. Uh, you know, hopefully not getting to the case where, where we'd uh, be mm-hmm. fainting. And it would have to be, you know, if people are going to exercise, they're probably uh, maybe going to be out half an hour, 40 minutes. You know, like you, what you mentioned, you're probably in that type of thing where, you know, I feel more for like the construction workers right. outside. Yeah. You know, where you're out there and just like you mentioned, if you're in a mm-hmm. res- restaurant, you're in front of that grill for four or five hours. It's mm-hmm. longer than you'd be exercising. Yeah, totally. All right, Scott, thanks very much for uh, filling us in and, and providing us with uh, this information. I really appreciate it. Okay, no problem. My pleasure. George Affleck in for Jill Bennett this week, and we are talking about a whole bunch of different things in, in this show today. But the one thing that I've started thinking about was the Olympics. The Olympics are coming, everyone. In less than a month, the Tokyo Olympic Games will officially open a year later than they were supposed to, without uh, that said, and with a ton of public scrutiny. But it will open. It's going to open. Our show contributor, John Jang, has the latest on the hopeful Canadians who are fighting to represent the Maple Leaf in Japan. Hey, good afternoon, George. The 2020 Tokyo Olympics will open in less than a month, but now is still a busy time for Canadian athletes hoping to represent their country in Japan. Over the past week, athletes across various sports have been competing in the final round of Olympic qualifiers, including one of the most compelling summer Olympic sports, that being freestyle swimming. Now, you may recall the name Penny Alexiak. She was the 16-year-old phenom who secured four medals from Rio 2016, including the gold medal in the 100-meter freestyle. Now 21 years old, Alexiak will be one of the leaders for Team Canada, expected to finish strong on the podium yet again. But don't be surprised if you keep hearing the name Summer McIntosh. McIntosh is a 14-year-old from Toronto who actually recently beat Penny Alexiak in the 200-meter freestyle final with a personal best time of 1 minute 56 seconds. That's also the fastest time ever recorded by a 14-year-old swimmer anywhere in the same field. With that victory, McIntosh officially qualified for Tokyo 2020, making her one of the youngest competitors for these summer games. Over on the hard court, Canada's men's basketball team is down to their final opportunity to qualify for the upcoming Olympic Games, with the tournament starting in Victoria tomorrow. They are heavily favored to win the tournament, with a roster that consists of several star NBA players and a head coach who recently won the 2019 NBA championship with the Toronto Raptors and the 2020 Coach of the Year award, that being Nick Nurse. Uh, The team is led by Andrew Wiggins and RJ Barrett, and they should be the heavy favorites in pretty much every game that it plays throughout this tournament. The only problem is the men's program has been maligned for much of its Olympic history, finishing on the podium only once, which was a silver medal back at the 1936 Summer Games in Nazi Germany. But this could be the most talented roster Team Canada has ever had to deal with. 
That being said, enormous amounts of pressure. But staying with basketball, I'll quickly mention that this particular tournament in Victoria is going to actually have some spectators in the stands. There was a lot of confusion as to whether or not this would happen, but BC Public Health officially announced on Friday that they would allow 10% attendance at the Save on Foods Memorial Center in downtown Victoria for games beginning this week. Now, the arena typically sits uh, 7,400 fans depending on the event, so approximately 700 fans will be able to cheer on Team Canada throughout this qualifying tournament. Last I heard, there's a lottery system in place for those that are interested to enter the draw so that you can be one of the 700 who gets to be at the Save on Foods Memorial Arena. I'll just add this, they probably have air conditioning. Now, before we go any further, I'd also like to shout out three athletes from BC who qualified to compete in Tokyo next month on Canada's marathon team. It's three women, Melindy Elmore, Natasha Wodak and Dana Podorsky. They will all make the trip, making this the first time that Canada has had six marathoners competing at the Olympics. Fun story, Elmore and Wodak have been running together since high school. Now they are 40 and 39 years old respectively with a chance to bring home the medal. That is incredible stuff. In golf, uh, it was announced yesterday that Brooke Henderson will once again play for Team Canada at the Summer Games. She'll look to improve on her performance from the 2016 Games in Rio, where she finished 7th in the women's tournament. In that time, Henderson has become one of the top draws in women's golf. Uh, She has won seven LPGA Tour titles and was named the best female golfer at the 2019 ESPY Awards. Moving into tennis, Denis Shapovalov will not be competing at Tokyo out of safety concerns. While a specific reason wasn't exactly provided in a statement on social media that he shared last week, the insinuation is that Shapo's team was not comfortable with the COVID-19 situation in Japan and actually advised the 22-year-old to skip the games. That being said, Canadians will have a chance to cheer on Bianca Andreescu, who will make her Olympic debut in Tokyo next month. And it's actually perfect timing for Andreescu, as uh, Serena Williams, of course the most decorated tennis player in history, announced she will skip the Olympics this year. Question marks remain how much longer she's going to stay in the game of tennis. So it could be that Serena Williams has hung up her Olympic career. Regardless, that means the women's tournament has been bust completely open. And Andreescu, who is the current seventh-ranked player in the world, has a wonderful opportunity to finish on the podium. More Olympic stories will be sure to break over the next few days and weeks leading up to the opening ceremony, which of course takes place on Friday, July 23rd. Back to you, George. Thanks, John. And, you know, it's, what's your favorite sport at the Olympics? Oh, that's a tough one. I mean, you know, there's so many different sports at the Olympics there in the summertime. Of course, we know about the mainstream ones like basketball, like golf as well, tennis, of course, because usually, you, you'll usually watch it on the television all throughout the year. Mm-hmm. It's the sports that don't get a lot of love in the four <laughs> years in between. So for me, mm-hmm. I'm really excited about the swimming. I want to follow the su- the story of Summer McIntosh, this 14-year-old that somehow uh, dethroned Penny Alexiak quite recently. So she's going in there, and she's got that perfect win-win scenario, George. She's 14, so it's not like she has a ton of pressure on her shoulders, and she can just become a sponge, soak up the experience, and four years again down the road at the next Summer Games, right. she's going to have that experience to fall back on and maybe be that grizzled veteran at the ripe age 
of 18 years old. <laughs> I, you know, that's true, though, what you say about the – because, I, I, you know, I watch tennis but I, I regularly, but I don't usually watch it during the Olympics. I don't really pay much attention. So, you know, Serena not being there, Williams, I'm like, yeah, okay, well, you know. But because uh, I'm always more interested in, yeah, weird things like shot put, <laughs> like that stuff going on on, on the fields and, and, and you know, the, the, the 100 meter and those things that, uh, you know, they, those things happen all the time, but I never watch them. Exactly. Yeah. So it's an opportunity for us to, first of all, appreciate all the different sports that mm-hmm. are out there that don't get, uh, you know, the weekly or daily sports coverage on highlight reel packages and things of that nature. But also just to see, like, which Canadian athletes have been working so tremendously over the mm-hmm. past three to four years to try and make this dream come true. Uh, you know, who whoever thought that we'd be talking about guys like Evan Dunphy on a more regular basis. But now that he's that uh, Canadian race walker based out of Richmond, B.C., you know, he's certainly been in the media far more since we saw him a few years ago down there at Rio. So it's just a great chance for us to see, okay, uh, we're going to see which athletes are the best among Canada and we'll cheer them on handily. Did you ever do sports when you were a kid? Like, did you ever excel at a sport? Uh, I played a whole bunch of different things. I don't. I don't think I ever excelled at any. At in your mind, did you excel? Oh yeah. In that case, you know, I, was, uh, I, I just missed out on the NHL. <laughs> I, I got to tell you, George, I just missed out on the NBA. Uh, but the one thing that I actually did do for a long time that I went and and achieved a certain level of uh, accomplishment was um, Taekwondo. Um, of oh, course, yeah. Taekwondo and martial arts are mm-hmm. part of the Summer Olympics, but right. uh, I would never want to be competing in a sport at the Olympic level where someone has to literally kick me in the face no thank you it's uh you know yeah because i used to play various sports but and i would fantasize about oh yeah the olympics were so huge when i was a kid and i would fantasize about you know you know being a you know for a olympic runner or something even though i'm not tall enough to be in most running races but you sort of have this imagination of this but then you find out because i have friends you know i grew up in langley who did really leah pels who you know went on to olympic you know these are accomplished athletes uh and you see the work they put into it it's it's hard it's a job they do it full time all the time it's not something you just kind of wing it Absolutely. Yeah, the training is a year-long process for a lot of these pro athletes. And again, most of them do it out of the love for the sport, out of the love for the game. And they just want a chance to uh, just, I guess, compete with the world's very best and see how they sort of match up against everybody else. But, you know, when you think of the traditional Olympic summer games, um, you, you think of the, the sports that don't get, again, a lot of that mainstream love, like mm-hmm. javelin, mm-hmm. Uh, shot put, uh, long mm-hmm. jump, high jump. All of these have been around for so, so long. But Truthfully, can you name any Canadian athlete mm-hmm. who's participated in those events? Not mm-hmm. really. So it's an opportunity for us at the end of the day to get to know which Canadians have been doing this and uh, the kind of training and commitment that all of this requires. And we love winning. You know, I think you look at the Winter Olympics and how we were just so excited and getting mm-hmm. all those golds and silvers and bronze. It's very, you know, sometimes it doesn't even matter about the sports. You, the competition for us as viewers is the number of, uh, you know, uh, golds and silvers and bronze we get. Is there a, is there a chance, you think, though, this is delayed a year. Is, it, do you, is there a chance it might still get canceled? Honestly, I would have said there was a greater chance it would have been canceled or postponed about a week ago. Uh, I, I think at this point, with less than one month to go, that it's pretty much on. And there could still be issues with COVID-19 in Japan. The vaccine rollout of that country has not been so efficient. It has not been so quick. Hmm. But there is a belief that both the IOC 
and the Tokyo Japan organizers in Japan are just so reluctant to cancel this any further because there's so much money on the line. And the fact that it had to be postponed already by one year, uh, that tells me that there is just an incredible amount of stress and financial strain mm-hmm. on the Japanese economy oh, that yeah. they kind of have to do this. Yeah. Otherwise, they'll be on the hook for hundreds of millions, maybe billions of dollars, George, without anything to show for it. So if you're the IOC organizers, Kinda. what kind of a decision can you make? It's a really tough position. I think they'll continue with the games, even with all the risks. All right, John. Thanks very much. That was really interesting. You got it. Thanks.